this um, in thinking on the the material that we're going to look at tonight. In fact, I've just finished last week answering a letter from lessons I presented down in Huntsville uh, on the subject of grace and law, and where the, it's the understanding of the man that responded in the letter that that if obedience is not essential to your salvation and it's not to be taught in that way that you're saved because of obedience and all then there is no necessity of it and in responding to him I pointed out and I'd like to we'll look at this in the passages here that our difference is not really in the practice of the Christian religion in other words we believe in keeping laws just as strongly as those who teach a salvation that's tied in with being exactly right in law keeping and whatnot, the difference is in the motivation for uh, the keeping of the laws and the significance themselves. And the first thing that I think we can see here is that in the New Testament, the motivation for keeping laws comes not from fear, but it comes out of appreciation and love of a God who loved you so much that he gave his only son for you. That, that's the response. And, and your natural response is to want to respond to him. Like Paul said, that's your spiritual service of worship. It's just a natural thing you should want to do. And so it is a response in love to a God who's loved us so much. And then as we respond, there is the recognition, just like last week when we looked at Second Peter, and it spoke of those qualities that God would have us to partake of like brotherly kindness and Christian love, etc. But it said, if you partake of these in increasing measure, then you know that you would never stumble and all. Well, when he said increasing measure, obviously there's the assumption on Peter's part that you never are perfect. You can't partake of it in increasing measure when it comes to kindness and love and mercy and unselfishness if you've already reached fulfillment. And so Christians are looked at as individuals that in any spiritual quality that you want to look at us, I don't care what it is, faith, love, mercy, kindness, we possess none of those qualities to perfection. Our goal is always to increase. Well, the only way you could ever say you were saved because of being such and such or doing such and such is if you did it perfectly. In other words, if you can honestly say, I perfectly have loved God with all my heart, mind, and soul, and I have perfectly loved my neighbor as myself, and I have perfectly treated everybody as I would have them treat to me, and I perfectly keep the commands, great. You don't need Jesus, though. Uh, you, you've done just what he did. You have perfectly kept the law. You have your salvation. You have your righteousness in the law. The problem is that although we want to keep and we strive to keep, at our best we fall short. And so when we refer to one another as patient people, as understanding people, as merciful people, as unselfish people, we mean that in comparison with other people. That we have recognized this way as right, and we are maturing in it, so that I would say that this brother, when I say he's a good man, I mean in comparison with the general trend of men. He's a good man. Or if I say he's a patient man, I mean that in comparison with other men, he's a patient man. But if I look at him in terms of comparing with God, he's not good. He's not patient. He's not merciful. Because he falls short of this. That's always something that he's striving for. And so the obedience that's called forth is one that is motivated by love, uh, a desire to be like God, to be like Christ, and to strive. But all the time we're striving and, and recognizing as we strive, and this will come out somewhat in this tonight, recognizing as we strive that there are benefits in keeping God's law. That I honestly believe that you can show from the multitude of examples in the Old Testament and out into the New that in many ways we are blessed in direct proportion to our obedience to God's law. That, that just like we might say that uh, we know that heredity hands us some things that we can't do anything about so far as our bodies. But then forgetting about heredity, we reap benefits or consequences to the degree that we submit to the laws of nature. And to the degrees that we walk in harmony with nature's law when it comes to vitamins and minerals and exercise and the other laws of physics and all, to that degree and that degree alone we reap benefits in our physical body. To the degree we don't, we reap consequences. In the same way with God's moral law, 
God sets it forth as being perfect. And to the degree that I actually become this type of person, to that degree I'm going to reap benefits, my family's going to reap, reap, reap benefits, and others I come in contact with. And I believe you can say the same thing on the church as a, group, as a congregation of people. Why do we want to keep God's laws, like the man, the preacher that's responding to my lesson on grace, he says, why teach the exact preciseness of the organization of the church or, or the keeping of laws and anything uh, if, if you don't have to do it to be saved? You know, our salvation is not in some sense tied in with that. You want to do it because the law is perfect. I mean, it's crazy to, to put sand in your car when it's designed to run in gas. And in the same way, when you read about the organization of the church or the, the way of worship or the way of life or anything in the Bible, you're reading by men who are guided by the Holy Spirit. Well, it's hard to believe that somebody today or in any other day is going to improve on instructions that are laid down by God himself. And so that you want to do it because it's, it's the best way to do it. And I think that if we teach our young people that, and if we teach it in the church, you might actually, no might, I believe you will, you'll encourage more respect for God's law. If you teach it that way, in comparison to this, do this because God says so. It doesn't matter whether it makes sense or not. God may even be testing you. you know, may, may give you something that doesn't make sense, just to test you or something. Well, I believe that, that is nonsense. That if God gives it, there's a reason for it. And the young people ought to be taught there's a reason for everything God says, everything God does. You do it because it's the best way. You're going to be successful. You're going to be reap benefits to the extent that you actually keep that. And I think if that can be put in people's mind and they realize that, hey, my life is going to be fuller and richer and I'm going to be a happier person and I'm going to be more successful if I do this, that, there's a lot of motivation in that as opposed to do this because he's going to burn you if you don't. Uh, and, 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 and doing it as just simply an arbitrary thing because it's given by God. And I think as we see through here, this motivation out of love, uh, out of the fact that it's the best way, out of the fact that eternity hangs in the balance and that God has a job for us to do, all of that is the type of thing that is used by the apostles in the New Testament. All right, now look at uh, in uh, chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. He says... Uh, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. All right, now, how do we have this living hope? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And to an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power. Okay, so... We have a hope because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We're all going to die. But we have a living hope within us. Now, the difference when he says a living hope, one of the better explanations that I have heard on that as opposed to just something that's dead. Should have took that off the... Having a, a living hope, if <clears throat> I have money in the bank... Uh, that can cover an $800 check and I write that check that although it's a piece of paper and I've written something that is a live piece of paper because I, I can stand behind it and it, it's not just a dead letter alright if I have written $800 and it may look nice to you you might like to have that $800 but it's dead it has no meaning unless I have the power to stand behind it and so unless you know the money's in the bank and you're confident the only way you feel good about that check is if you're positive, the money's in the bank. Otherwise, you're very suspicious of it. It doesn't make you, it, it, may, it may be a little bit of hope, but you don't really feel real confident. We have a living hope because of the proof of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so when I think of the resurrection of Jesus, when I think of my own death and look forward to my resurrection, I think of the evidence that stands behind the resurrection of Christ. And if I can prove that, then that same one that was raised from the dead has told me that I'm going to be raised from the dead too. So Christians walk around with a living hope. Uh, why do we feel good about the whole situation? Because we can prove as a historical fact the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so we feel real good about our situation. And that's the living hope that we walk with. All right, now, he goes on after mentioning that living hope that we have. And uh, let's see, come on over to uh, verse 24 now. He says, uh, 
for all men are like grass, and their glory is like the flower of the field. And the grass withers, the flower fails, but the word of the Lord stands forever. This is the word that was preached to you. All right, now notice, and we're going to get into the part we're going to look at tonight. Therefore, and we're going to get into the Christian way of life. Now, the word therefore means in light of what I've just said. We're talking about motivation. And he's going to talk now about keeping God's laws, living in a certain way. What is the motivation that Peter gives for this? He starts off by saying that we have a living hope based on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Okay, so we walk around as people that, uh, unlike other in the world, who bury their dead or who go to funerals and who have at best a wild hope that maybe there's a happy hunting ground or something afterwards, that all people have hoped for something and invented stories about it. But we literally have a living and active and confident hope. We know whom we believe it. And it's something that is, is based on evidence. All right, now, there's another thing that we know. We not only know there's going to be a resurrection from the dead, that, that we can live forever. But we also know, as he ends the second chapter, all men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower falls. The word of God stands forever. Uh, we went uh, a few weeks back to the Hermitage and looked at this tremendous mansion that, uh, that uh, Andrew Jackson, I got him mixed up the other day, Andrew Jackson lived in. Here's, this, here's the mansion and all that he had and the grounds and everything. And then there was also a statement there, a copy from the newspaper, that stated that in, uh, in that period of time, between about 1830 and 1837, he was absolutely the most famous man in our country. He was the most renowned, the most famous man in our country. And, and people from Europe that came over here marveled at his humble surroundings because he was the most famous person in our country. Well, the point is, then we went out to the seminary, uh, cemetery. Well, sometimes it's the same, seminary and cemetery. But anyway, we went out, we went out to the graveyard, and he's dead. And, and, and you could tell by the statements, uh, you know, that if there ever was a man that loved his wife, uh, it was he and his relation to Rachel. Uh, he was just crushed when she died. He, his whole life revolved around her when she was living. And she died 17 years before he did. And all of these great people in our history, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln or whoever you look to as being great, they all died. And so he says now there's two things. He says, number one, you have a living hope of the resurrection of Jesus today. He says, something else you know too. We're not stupid. You know that this is a truth, that all flesh is like the grass of the field. We're, we're just here for a very short period of time, and then we pass away. Now he says, therefore. In other words, in light of the fact that you've got a resurrection coming in Jesus, in light of the fact that life here is very short, therefore... Rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind, and like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So, he, he talks to the, about the Christian, that he's tasted, how has he tasted that the Lord is good? Well, let's go, he has this living hope of the resurrection of Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So when we come to that understanding, we have come, we have tasted that the Lord is good, and that he loves us so much that he gave Jesus for us, and that we have eternal life, we have the promise of the resurrection. In light of that knowledge, then, he says that we ought to rid ourselves of all malice. God is good, God loves us. Uh, we know we've got a few years here at best. The God is spirit. The real us is spiritual. Then it's foolish not to go ahead and rid ourselves in the few years we got in this life of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. All right, now notice also with Peter, like we noticed last, last week, when he says rid yourselves, it was never the understanding of any writer in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit came into your heart and in some mystical way made you a good person. It just doesn't happen. Remember last week he said in uh, 2 Peter 1, if you do these things, then inference shall be supplied to you and the king. And that when it came to all those spiritual qualities, it was something that you made the intellectual decision to do. In the same way, 
if I become a person that has rid myself of malice and deceit and everything, it'll be because of something I make the decision to do, and you make the decision to do, and the Holy Spirit's doing his part when he tells me what God wants done. He's the spirit of truth. He's to search out the mind of God and reveal it to us. Uh, the sword of the Spirit's the word of God. And Peter has just said, as newborn babes, we long for milk. And so when the Holy Spirit gives us the information, uh, we make our decisions and we reap our benefits. And if we do this, it'll be because we make the decision to do it ourselves. All right, now, let's start in with the uh, fourth verse, starting with Barbara. And let's read on around through, let's, well, let's complete the second chapter here, and then let's pause. I'll just read a few verses. Yeah, just, you know, hit, hit it at a good breaking point and read it on around. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God, and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobeyed the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out to darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considered, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and injure it and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you, met, that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, wounds you have been healed for you were like sheep going astray but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls okay now with Paul's there and I'm going to start at the back and then go back to the first because we're looking at not just obeying or doing what God wants us to do we said that the key for what we want to notice tonight is to look at the motivating force behind that and look at verse uh, after, after he tells them to go ahead and submit to endure hardship and more, to overcome evil with good, etc. But then he, t he steps right in there, and verse 21, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And so, lest the motivating factor, unless anybody thinks it's too hard to do whatever he's asking you to do, he says, remember, Christ gave you an example, he suffered for you, and he gave you an example to follow in his steps. And then what about him? He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they heard the insults at him, he did not retaliate. 
When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. Okay, notice his motivating force. That he wants us to do something that is contrary to our fleshly nature. He wants us to overcome evil with good. He wants us to be a certain type people. He recognizes that to be this type of people, in fact, uh, let's see, where's uh, the statement that he refers to us as uh, aliens and pilgrims in the land? Verse 11. Okay, verse, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. Why is he saying that? Why are we any uh, aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires? In other words, that those people that have become Christians definitely have always represented the minority of humanity. And, and this way of life is represented by the minority. And so we are an alien. We're a stranger in this world. And when he says uh, to abstain, look at that next statement to abstain from sinful desires, well, what about the people that are not walking with the Lord? Do they abstain from sinful desires? They don't. In other words, the, the philosophy of our own country is strictly hedonistic. Uh, get all the gusto out of life. Uh, you've come a long way, baby. And then uh, all of the advertisement that, that appeals to us to go out and to get all the material things we possibly can, to satisfy all our craving for any type of pleasure, any desire that you have, uh, the sexual thing, that's just a natural thing of the body, just satisfy it any way that you feel like it or any way that you like to. That, that's the philosophy of our society. In fact, it's been the philosophy of any affluent society that's ever existed. It, that's been the philosophy. Well, when we come along and, and we say, no, you don't just go out and satisfy the desires of the flesh. That you recognize that you're a spiritual being, that you live in the flesh, and that you're made in the image of God, and that God has a certain way for you, that he wants you to live. And this sometimes means saying no to our flesh, and that we operate in control of our flesh, and we're to conduct ourselves in a certain way. Well, to the extent that we do that, we are aliens and strangers in the world. In other words, something is wrong if God's people are living in such a way that they're not an alien or a stranger in the world. Uh, I mean, these people were citizens of the country, just like everybody else. And yet he said, you're aliens and strangers in, in the world. And so something is wrong. With, and, and I think maybe we ought to examine our own lives if it's such that we don't feel Lot was an alien and a stranger in Sodom. And so Peter himself will write that Lot was vexed in his spirit daily because of the corruption in that city. In other words, he didn't feel comfortable with it. And so Christians ought to be a people that, that don't feel comfortable with the sin that's in this world. All right, now, his motivation then, he's asking us to do something that is different than what the majority of humanity is doing. And he knows it's going to be difficult to do. That, that we're going to, we talk about the hardship of minorities, we're going to be a minority wherever we go. And so he knows that's difficult. So what's his motivating force? Look at Jesus. That Jesus suffered, he was a perfect man, and yet he suffered for sins. And yet he did not make any threats, he did not retaliate, he lived a certain way right up to the point that they killed him. He's our, he's our example. In fact, look at verse 12. After he uses that for a motivation, he says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Now when he says, although they accuse you of doing wrong, the Christians of this day were accused of all kinds of things that were manufactured in any number of ways. For it. One of the things, for example, that circulated is that they were cannibals because they had heard that Christians met very early in secrecy and partook of the literal blood and body of someone, believing they were taken with the literal blood and body of, of Jesus. Well, this got out among the pagans, and by the way, Roman scholars wrote on this. They thought they were cannibals. They didn't understand it. Well, the reason, by the way, the Christian service of the first century was quite different than our open assembly today where we put big signs up and invite people in. Uh, they were being persecuted. And many times they met underground and in secret, similar to what they meet in Russia and China and, and some places today. And so Christians were meeting, and the pagans knew that they met, and they had heard that they were take, partaking of the blood and the body. And so this went out, that they were cannibalistic. 
Right? Another way that bad was said about them. Christians, as well as Jews, were called atheists. This was interesting to me in reading about the pagan thinking about Christians at this time. They thought of them as atheists and people who denied the gods. And what it was, Christians and Jews were the only people on the earth that recognized one spiritual God that you couldn't make an emblem of or see in any way. We were absolutely unique in that. Everybody else had a plurality of gods, but see, they were easy to get along with because, for example, if you were a Roman, you had your gods, but you didn't deny the Greek gods. He had his gods. And his gods may be the god over there, and yours the god over here. And every other country had their gods. And they all respected one another's gods. That's why that Rome was so tolerant of Judaism. They respected their god. But here comes the, the Jews and the Christians. And the Jews and the Christians were actually obnoxious to the pagan of that day because they looked with disdain upon the other gods. And they said that they were no gods at all. And so they actually referred to as people that were atheists and did not believe in the gods. So here are the negative things they're saying about Christians. They're a bunch of cannibals. They, they meet and eat the blood and body of somebody they believe that was raised from the dead. Two, they're calling them atheists because they reject all the other gods. Well, another thing that happens is the Christians are denouncing all kinds of things that are being practiced. For example, I, just, I, didn't, I knew it was bad, but I didn't know it was quite this bad. I read this the other day in some material by Barclay, and he said of the, of the last 15 Roman emperors, 14 of them were homosexuals. Of course, I knew that Nero was, and that several in that category, but I didn't know it was that bad. And he said 14 out of 15, and that they were just absolutely perverted sexually. Well, here you are in Rome, and, and just like the acceptance in our own country, and you've got a homosexual emperor, and you've got all kinds of sexual abasement going on, and, and, and what do you've got Paul saying and the Christians espousing? That this kind of thinking is a result of a reprobate mind. That, that, and it's perversion. Well, what happens today when you speak out in a society that talks about gay rights and, and, and believes in the acceptance of that, and you come along and you say that is a perversion of the way that you're created, and it's not acceptable by God. It's a result of a reprobate thinking by people that have left God. Well, if we said that very vocally... It just simply doesn't come over very good in the, in the mind. So one of the things with us that saves us probably is we're just not very vocal with it many times. But they apparently were. And so that they were looked down on and they were condemned. But notice now what he says in verse 12. Live such good lives among them that although they accuse you of a lot of things now, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. All right, now... Notice an assumption that's made there, and it's made all through the Bible. Jesus said to uh, be a light and to let your good works and your deeds shine before others that they may see them and glorify the Father in heaven. All right, now, what's the underlying assumption there? Moses said that uh, in Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8, he said, if you keep these laws, that other nations will look at you and they will say, what nation is there that has a God so righteous as their God? What nation is there that has ordinances so righteous as that ordinance? What's it, whether you're Moses, looking at the statement by Moses, Jesus, or Peter here, what's, what's the underlying assumption? Talking about the pagans. Right, right and wrong in, in both ways. Okay. He, there is the underlying assumption that the pagans out there, if they haven't read one word in the Bible, then in reality, they know right and wrong. And remember Paul said that the Gentiles of his own conscience would stand condemned because he of his own nature could perceive the things in the law itself. Right? Man is made in the image of God. And he has this inner ability to identify with what is morally right. Whether he does it or not is one thing. And that's why, that in fact, I know when I think in terms of evidences, one of the very first evidences to me of something special about the Bible, before I ever studied seriously in Christian evidences, was the fact that when I heard it preached or read, the moral principles, that they always seemed right, even if they stepped on your toes. There was just something there. And then also always that people that lived like that always were impressive to me. Just like in uh, my, my situation, that at first my mother was a Christian, 
Uh, my stepfather wasn't. And, uh, and his, his, he had his friends, and he was a good man, but he wasn't a Christian. And he had his friends, he, they smoked, and they drank, and they danced. Mom didn't touch any of that stuff. And she, was, and she had a different type. Well, I met people I liked both ways, but there was a quality over here that just seemed right to me. In other words, there was just an attraction there that this just simply seemed right. This emphasis on pure honesty and moral purity and everything like that just seemed right, uh, no matter about any other proof or anything like that. And so that there is the underlying assumption that everybody out there has made an image of God and that what is right is right because it works. And that if you conduct yourself in a certain way, and I think that all you have to do is look at any society and based on, we're all, we're uneducated people here, think of a society where unselfish people are exalted. Think of a society, I'm saying uh, where selfish people are exalted, I should say. Try to think of a society where selfish people are exalted. Now everybody may be selfish. Try to think of a society where unselfish people are not exalted. Why is it we, that every person, even if you're a selfish person, you like unselfish people, and selfish people turn you off. And that's true of selfish. If, if Think of a society where dishonesty is appreciated, and honesty is looked down on. Well, even dishonest people respect honest people, and, and are leery of dishonest individuals. There's just something within us. We have no problem saying that, that even if we're dishonest ourselves, that honesty is something that we respect in an individual. Fairness is something we respect. Justice is something that we respect. Uh, a way of life that is kind or considerate of others is something we respect. And so what Peter is saying here to the Christian, that you can live such a life that people, people speak well of you, no matter what they have heard or the misconceptions they had or, any, or anything of that nature. Well, I think that obviously if that's true there, that ought to be true today. That we ought to, if we conducted ourselves, in the way that God asked us to, then we ought to live lives and our children ought to conduct themselves in such a way that there is compliment and something that is seen out there that is different than what's going on in the world. All right, now, look what he says in verse uh, 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. <clears throat> Notice again, where's your motivation? For the Lord's sake, the one who died for you, to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king or the supreme authority, are to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong. Right now, the question becomes, what kind of government existed when Peter made that statement? Was there a such thing as a democracy in the world? It wasn't. Uh, they knew nothing except kings and totalitarian type governments. And Rome, like I said, had perverts on the throne. And so the, the Christian is told to respect the authority. He doesn't, we've got other passages that obviously teach that we don't do anything morally wrong or anything of that nature, but we're told to respect, we're told to pay our taxes, we're told to give honor to whom honor is, is due, and so the Christians are to conduct themselves in such a way that they actually respect the authority. The primary purpose of the authority, they may pervert it sometime, but it says they are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. In other words, people have government, uh, they have to have laws that are enforced, and the primary motive is to punish those that, that do wrong and to reward those that do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. How do you silence it? By doing good. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Okay, then slaves, submit yourself to your masters. All right, now, when I look at this, and it's hard for me to keep out of the other, and I've got into it sometimes, although we've got a lot of wrong things in our society that we all believe are wrong, and the Christian response, just like uh, I've been reading a lot in the paper about the, on the abortion, and there are a number of Christian groups fighting abortion by marching out in the street and burning down even abortion clinics and by getting into 
to name calling sessions with them and, and things of this nature, I believe they're totally out of place. Uh, I don't believe in abortion, and we live in a country that our citizenship allows us to cast a vote, but I believe that, that that's not, that would not, from what I can understand Peter saying here, I don't believe that's the way that Christianity overthrew the Roman world. Uh, they, they, didn't get, they did not get out in the street and petition and throw rocks and call names and things of that nature that they just simply lived their lives in such a way that there was a contrast between them and the other. And for those who were seeking truth, that contrast was attractive. And he's going to, in fact, so much so that, come over here to chapter 3, where he says, Wives, in the same way, submit to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe, they may be one without the word, but behavior of the wives. In other words, that specifically he's talking about wives, it, it would be true in any sense. He's saying that behavior that reflects obedience to the word of God will be obviously right, it'll be attractive to other people, it'll come across as something that works, and you can attract other people to that philosophical system as, as something that, that actually works in life itself. And it seems to me that whether it's abortion or drugs or drinking or whatever it is, that the best way for Christians to fight that is to live the way that God would have them to and to be a light and to actually be kind and courteous and polite to these people when we meet them and always be looking for an opportunity to teach them in the right way. And, and I'm not so sure that you can even legislate morality anyway when you get right down to it. You can legislate morality to the extent that nobody wants to tolerate behavior that is can hurt you, such as stealing from you or killing you or anything of that nature. But when it comes to legislating everything about another person's sexual behavior or things that they do that do not affect you or society, uh, I think the historical record would show that it's pretty hard to legislate that kind of thing. And that the one thing that Christians can do, and, and Peter now, keep in mind, the people he writes to are under a totalitarian type government. They don't even have a vote like we've got. We've got a vote. But they don't even have a vote. But he's telling them that they can change the system by the way they live. Any comments on what we've discussed so far? All right, notice the part there where he says, uh, live as free men, verse 16, and do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Uh, remember Paul spoke of the same thing in Galatians about we're free. Uh, sometimes that people who are legalistic, who think in of salvation in terms of law-keeping, when you start showing them the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, sometimes I think the thing that scares them is they think you're opening up a Pandora's box where everybody can just exactly what they want. Well, even though it may be scary, the Lord gives us that freedom, but then what everybody needs to be told, obviously, why warn that your freedom can be misused unless it can be? It obviously can be. And so obviously when we tell people that you have freedom in Christ Jesus and all, that obviously that freedom can be misused. And so he warns, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, I think people can do this in any number of ways. There are some things that, that I believe are just obviously wrong that there may not be a specific command that deals with it. And, and somebody will always come along and say, well, there is no command that says, thou shalt not gamble if I want to go to Las Vegas and, and spend the weekend. Or if my thing is, is playing bingo every week, show me the law, thou shalt not gamble or anything like that. Or... The person who wants to run around in a, in a short shorts, a mini skirt, or the abbreviated things that they, they, they wear at the swimming pools and things of that nature, will always say, show me the passage that says precisely how long it's to be or anything like that. Well, it doesn't. It speaks in terms of modesty and decency. It, it speaks in terms of of your sexuality so far as a man who's not supposed to look on it, look on a woman other than his wife with lust in his heart for uh, and so there's all kinds of principles there but you do have freedom to choose there and because you have freedom that I believe you can, we can abuse that but I think that if somebody does it he just has to, has to do it but we, we have freedom there but he's warning that freedom can be abused and, and people can use the freedom that we have in Christ to justify a lot of things that they want to. In fact, one of the things that bothers me 
uh, that's going on in the church today is that uh, that uh, on the one hand we're doing a lot of good things in preaching about the grace of God and getting away from this concept of salvation by what you're doing all. But by the same token, when I read church bulletins, and I get a number of them, that you turn and you read the pages, and it's this group is, you know, we're going bowling, we're going ice skating, we're going, we're going boating, we're meeting over here for a party. There's nothing wrong with boating, there's nothing wrong with ice skating, nothing wrong with any of that kind of stuff. But what I'm saying is when you've got a spiritual institution that seems to be just obsessed with having fun constantly, but where is the personal work group that is, that, that, that is or, or where is the time that they come together with the whole purpose of going out and reaching and trying to convert somebody? In other words, you can create a situation where it is just strictly a fun type thing and, and not be doing the things that we need to do to reach others. And so I think that you may think of any number of things or you may disagree with that, but at least the, the statement is there that there is a freedom that can be misused. And I think that there's a warning to us that we do have freedom in Christ. And everything isn't legally spelled out. There are great principles of love and service and moral principles that's laid down. And there's an opportunity to abuse some freedom if we so desire. And he's warning us uh, to be careful in that realm. Anybody want to make any comments? I think a, a parallel is um, the freedom we enjoy in this country as compared to a place, you know, maybe like uh, the Soviet Union or something like that. And yet that freedom can be abused. And we even have to, you know, the ACLU and other groups will, will you know, fight to make sure the principles of freedom are ensured no matter how bad it may seem to us. In other words, we're willing to take the risk of some bad things going on to protect the, the freedom that we have. Whereas, uh, but it's a risk, even if you're talking about, you know, the freedom as far as uh, getting your own job and everything like that, there's some people that have no interest in that that will just just not work and you know live off the government and things like that. But you know, but then if you've got a situation like in Soviet Union, to me it's comparable to the other way because people just do what they have to do, and as a result, you have um, people that are is not as productive, is um, just concerned about doing the minimum about what they have to do in, in any type of situation like that. Whereas if people have the freedom to do whatever they want to do, there's going to be some people who, who are, who are bums, but then there it's going to open the way for other people to, for the most people, to stand out and do a lot more than they would otherwise do. I think it's real good that, uh, and I think that makes a perfect contrast. If you wanted to look, Paul drew a contrast between Christianity and the old law, and I think you can you can do it with this country and what they got in Russia. The pornography that we have in this country, they don't have in Russia or China. Uh, they don't have a, a license. Uh, there, there are not hookers walking the street in China and in Russia. They won't tolerate it. When the, when the North Vietnamese came in and took over, and when we got out of Vietnam, first thing they did is get all the hookers off the street and clean that place up. But they don't have it, not because they're better people or anything like that. They don't have the freedom to have it. And so that's right. They, they enforce that type of thing. And so their system, by force, creates a certain artificial goodness. But then on the other hand, there is not the freedom to excel in a lot of areas that we excel. And so the, the world looks to the, to the free world for its technology. And everybody knows that, that the technology is developed in the free world by, by free minds. And, and all the other advances in civilization are developed by free people. In the same vein, the Jew had certain things legally spelled out, you know, tithing, etc. You know, that uh, it was spelled out in, in detail. The Christian is, has a freedom. And, but that freedom allows him to go ahead and excel. For example, if I was a Jew and not a Levite, I couldn't teach. Legally, only the, the Levite is set aside as the, as the priest, etc. But the freedom we have in Christ means that anybody that wants to and aspires to it and all can go ahead and preach or, or teach or write or whatever that God has given the ability to do. That when it comes to giving, uh, we've had people that give far beyond any 10% of their, of their income or far beyond any minimal amount in their life. So on the one hand, freedom has all this good it can get out of people, but then there's the risk, and I think in the same in the church today, that sometimes I honestly believe uh, that in the legalistic, more fundamental churches, that we want to convert the 
change the church into something that would be comparable to Russia. We're so scared of what people are going to do with their freedom that we want to enact our own legislation and hold everybody back. But freedom can be used for good and be used for bad. And of course, the, the letters themselves in other places will tell us how to handle when somebody has misused their freedom. I mean that we can withdraw fellowship and make it clear that we don't endorse uh, that, that type of thing. But we still have to allow the freedom there. And so he recognizes it and recognizes the, the potential it has for good and the potential it has for evil. Now, anything that has a potential for good has an equal potential for evil. And if you take away its potential for evil, you take away its potential for good. Uh, you, you take away the ability of a knife to slit somebody's throat, and you also take away its ability to cut a vegetable. Everything is covered in freedom and stuff, but we do have it. Uh, I don't think it's anything to be afraid of. It's something to be encouraged, but it needs to be channeled in the right way. Live like free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live, like, live as servants of God. All right, then he says, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, fear in the sense of reverence, respect, all honor the king, honor the authority, whatever it is. And then he said, slaves, submit to your masters. Uh, it's interesting in the way Christianity overthrew slavery. Uh, Christianity overthrew slavery even though the Bible does not specifically condemn it. Uh, they were told to be, slaves were told to be subject to their masters. By the way, the slaves of that day, many of them were slaves because they had went in debt and had to sell themselves to pay their debts. The Jew, uh, by his understanding, every seventh year a person was set free from whatever it was. But in other words, it was servitude for a period of time based on something, whether it was debts or a person may have bought a wife like uh, uh, Jacob did by selling himself in servitude for, for a period of years. And But whatever the way he got into it, uh, he was told to submit to the masters. Christianity over a period of time because of the changing of people's thinking do unto others as you would have them do unto you, for example, would wipe out slavery. And that's the only way that it would be wiped out. Remember how uh, a good example on that is, remember Paul when he writes to Philemon? And Onesimus was a slave of Philemon. And Paul has converted Philemon. And Paul is in jail. And Onesimus escaped from Philemon. And somehow he winds up in jail with Paul. While he's in jail, Paul converts him. And so now he's going back. He gets out of jail. He's going back to Philemon. And Paul is sending this letter by him. And he's telling him to receive Onesimus, that whatever debt that he's owed, he says, charge it up to me and I'll pay it. But then he pleads with Philemon. He said, of your own free will. He says, not by way of command, but of your own free will. And then he wanted him to give Onesimus his freedom. But he wanted it to be of his own free will and not by apostolic command. It's like that everything that we do, God wants it to come about because we have grown in love and then we're doing it of our, of our own free will. Any other comments over anything there involving the obedience, the motivation for it? Okay, um, wives told to be submissive to their husbands, to conduct themselves in a, in a certain way. Uh, let's see, who was the last one to read? Okay, Jack, would you start with uh, verse 3, please? Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braiding hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Yeah, Steve. Likewise, you husbands, live with your wives with understanding and hold them with tenderness like like delicate vessels, because they also will inherit with you the gift of everlasting life. <clears throat> Do this that you may not be hindered in your prayers. Finally, live in harmony, share the suffering of those who suffer, be, affect be affectionate one to another, and be kind and gentle, not rendering evil for evil, nor railing for railing, but instead of these, 
render, render blessing, for to this end you have been called, that you might inherit a blessing. Now for therefore, now therefore, he who desires it, he who desires eternal life and wants to see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. How long do you want me to read? Okay, just go ahead and finish that up through that psalm, up through verse twelve. Let him refrain from evil and do, and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the countenance of the Lord is against the wicked. Okay, now, look again. We read a section, and he's calling on uh, Christians to live a certain way that's different from those in the world. And he, he definitely makes it clear this is the way that God wants you to live. But then notice again, we said that always the motivating factor is there. He adds to the motivating factor. And so he quotes from Psalms 34. And look at the quotation there. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips. In other words, why keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful? If you love life and you want to see good days. In verse 11, you must turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Why? For... The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so the motivating factor is God is present. He's omnipresent. And God's aware of the people that do evil, and He's aware of the people that do right. And God's ears are attentive to your prayer. Remember what it said to the husband to treat the wife in a certain way so that your prayers be not hindered? In other words, he tells the husband, you can't treat your wife contrary to the way that God would have you treat her and then think that God's going to listen to your prayer. And in the same way he says to Christians, you can't go out here and act in a way that's contrary to the way God would have you act and then think God's going to be in tune to your prayer. So his motivating force that he has used all the way through here, number one, we have a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Number two, our, we're, the flesh is like the flower of the grass. It just, it just passes away. You know, We're just here for a short period of time. Number three, God's providential care, God's omnipresence. God is aware of everything that's going on. And so when you're doing good, you know that God's on your side. And by the way, in this same, this same song where he says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, his ears are attentive to their prayer. All right, hold your place there and turn back there to Psalms 34 and look at the whole psalm. Psalms 34? Yeah. Verse 11. Sandy's okay. He just called. She just left 20 minutes out. So in case anybody else is worried about her. Well, I'll kill her. Or let's turn all the lights out and pull the cars around back. Jump out Okay, here's, now here's what he quoted. Look at verse 12 in Psalms 34. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue and go ahead and eat. Same thing Peter quotes, but just back up a little bit further. Same, the same psalm. Uh, look at verse 5 let's see verse 4 I sought the Lord and he answered me he delivered me from all my fears those who look to him are radiant their faces are never covered with shame this poor man called and the Lord heard him and he saved him out of all his troubles alright now the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. For the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Then he gets down to what Peter quotes. Peter quotes that little section, but we can see the entire psalm is one of God's providential care. And notice how it's brought about. The angel of God encamps around those who fear him. David's entire confidence was based in his belief in the providence of God and the fact that the angels... Remember when the, the Israelite people went into the land of Canaan, God had said that I will send my angel before you. Uh, in Psalms 91, he speaks of God, the angels being used in God's providential care. In Hebrews 1, 13 and 14, 
uh, Jesus speaks of the angels as being ministering spirits for those of us who would inherit salvation. And so, in calling for good as a motivating force, he says, remember, God is omnipresent, God is concerned, God's eyes are on the right, God's angels actually encamp around those that fear him, and he delivers them, that you will lack no, no good thing. In fact, I think you can think about life, it, if it were not for God's providential care in the things that he does beyond our understanding and the things we're aware of, life would be no more than a matter of chance. Jesus could not say, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be open, ask and you shall receive, that everyone that seeks finds, and everyone, how could he say that? Uh, I mean, the very guy that's seeking may be knocked in the head out here. The very guy that's trying to find the Lord may be run over by a car. And so, but God's providential care is such that God knows our hearts, and individuals that are striving to do right and seeking in that direction come under the providential care of God. Paul said it in Romans 8 and 28 when he said, God causes everything to work together for those that love the Lord. And so, in Peter's context then, in, uh, in, on the one hand, all the way through here, he's interweaving two things. He's wanting us to, to abstain from a lot of wrong things and do things that are right. His motivating force comes in the resurrection of Jesus, that living hope, the knowledge of the fact that we're living in a fleshly world, that we're only here for a short time, we're aliens, we're strangers and for this period of time, and then here he adds something else to the list, and that is God's providential care. That when you're doing right, God's on your side. And, and you've got God's providential care. And you don't have to, sometimes people do wrong simply because they're afraid of consequences. I believe people lie uh, sometimes because they're scared that telling the truth might keep me from getting this job. It might cause somebody to think less of me, or whatever it may be. And so out of fear of consequences, we sometimes don't do right. And he's saying you do right, you don't worry about the consequences, because when you do right, God is on your side, and you have his providential care. Okay, now, the end thing, we'll end on this for tonight. Look at verse 15. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. The word Lord means master. In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It's better, if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Christ died for sins once and for all. Okay, look at what he said here. In uh, asking to set apart Christ as Lord, the word Christ it means simply our, our, the, the anointed one, the Messiah is Lord. The word Lord means master. He says, set him apart as master in your heart. And so that Christ is set there. He's, he's already spoken of us as servants. So we're servants. Christ is the master. All right. Then he makes this statement in verse 15. Let me see. 3 and 15. Be prepared to give an answer to everyone that asks you of the reason of the hope that lies within you. All right, look at that word, answer. If you were reading that in the Greek, that word is apologias. Our term, uh, Christian apologetics, comes from this word here in 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. And the literal meaning is the ability to make an oral defense for what you believe. In other words, when a lawyer goes to court, he gave an answer in this sense. He went prepared. You don't go to court unprepared. You go to court prepared to make a defense for whatever you believe. All right, now, look at it again. Who's Peter writing to? We've already read writing to husbands, wives, Christians in general. He's not writing just to preachers. And he says, In your heart set apart Christ as Lord, and be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope. All right, what's the hope? He's already started off by saying that that we have a living hope based on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so that means that everybody we come in contact with, they know that we don't look on death like they do. We believe we're going to be raised from the dead. And we're absolutely confident about this. And we're, and, and we're living our lives different than they are because we believe we're living in tune with God's will. It's obviously right. And no matter what happens to us, so we have eternal life. Well, that kind of living is going to provoke questions. And so he says when the questions come, every Christian ought to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that they have within them. And this word answer comes from the Greek word that means 
to be able to make an oral defense for what you believe. Okay? But then he tells you how to do it. Do it with gentleness and respect and keep a clear conscience. And so, in his method of preaching then, uh, remember now he's depicted a world that is in sin and Christians living as aliens. They're to live in that world of sin, respectful of all the authority. They're to win others by the way they live. And then rather than being out here denouncing as such the world, they're living in such a way, their, their life is in contrast with this out there. They have a living hope, but then in a gentle manner, they're to give an answer for the hope that lies within them. In other words, they're to have the ability when, when we have contact with others and they want to know why in the world you're so confident you're going to be raised from the dead, you need to be able to tell them. And I think that, uh, that every Christian, if he knows anything at all, ought to be able to, to give a logical presentation of why he believes in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And keep in mind what would have happened there in the first century if the person that Peter is writing to, somebody says, well, why do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? And he says, because the Bible says so. And didn't have that. No, he's, he's writing a letter. This is one of many letters. They don't even have all the letters here, do they? They had the Old Testament scriptures. They were getting these letters and all. They had to lay down the, the evidence. In other words, when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, about the resurrection, says he appeared to so-and-so and to so-and-so and to so-and-so and above 500 at one time, and most of them are still alive. Then he appeared to me, and then he come in fulfillment of the scriptures, etc. Well, this is what Christians were saying to others. And so that Christians, if they're going to fulfill that, ought to have the ability. I believe that when our young people are in college, we, we all time are so concerned about what the things are supposed to be and, uh, supposed to be hearing and things of that nature. But if we were as concerned that they have the ability to defend what they believe and have the, the capacity to, to give the evidence for it, we wouldn't have to be so concerned about what they hear in the first place or, or the company they're in or, or anything of that nature. And I think the same in the church, that, that if everybody was, knew it and studied it, then we're not going to have to worry because it'll stand when, it, when it's put before any mind. Anybody with any comments on any of that? So his hope then, obviously based on evidence, because he ends there by telling him to, to be ready to give an answer and to state why you believe uh, in, in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And that is our motivating force. Any other comments?